Geek Card presents Back Issue Bloodbath with your hosts, Andrew Young and Petula Neal. Sometimes you're forced to do the cover before the story's done. Welcome to Back Issue Bloodbath. I'm Andrew Young, and this week is a special week because we are looking back at a great creator by the name of Neil Adams, and with it comes a special guest. Back once again is our good friend Adam Sikora to talk about all things comics. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Andrew. Glad to be here as always. A little sad about today's subject matter, but I think it's an important one. Yes, no, this past April, uh, of course, Neil Adams passed away and uh, left a big hole in the comics community, of course, not only a great creator who uh, had legendary runs in the 70s, but uh, also a advocate for creator rights and basically like a number of comic creators' surrogate fathers uh, with his work through Continuity Comics. He's a big deal. I got to meet Neil Adams once. I believe it was in 2013. It was at the Fan Expo. And uh, we'd set up to do an interview with him. I was manning the camera, and I had gotten somebody to sit down to do the interviewing portion. And the interviewer said, so who's your favorite character to draw? And Neil Adams' face just kind of dropped. And he looked over at me, passed the camera right at me, and went, don't tell me you pay this guy. Do you pay this guy to ask questions like that? And then he turned back to him and said, well, you know, I just like to draw characters, but if you want to ask a question like that, I'll give you the answer I give to kids. I like drawing Batman because it's like drawing two characters, Batman and his cape. <laughs> it's just sort of like, wow, he just kind of really roasted my interviewer, but it was pretty funny. <laughs> so, and then as the interview went on, he kind of warmed up to uh, to the guy and then suddenly this big smile came over his face while I was in the middle of an answer. And he stopped talking. And sure enough, Stan Lee just walked over. and was like, I had to say hello to my favorite artist of all time, Neil Adams. And he's like, he got up to him. He gave him a big hug and everything like that. And the interviewer was like, can I get a hug, Uncle Stan? And Stan just kind of turned and went, yeah, hi, how are you? And turned back. And... Neil and him ended up talking for several minutes about the money that one of them made in Australia. And I'm just standing there filming it the entire time. And at the end of it, Neil turned to me and said, you can use that except the part about the money. But the entire time they just talked about money, so I couldn't use any of it. <laughs> so that was the one time I got to meet Neil Adams. I also got to meet Neil Adams once. Nothing is in-depth as your anecdote there, as I wasn't there to interview him. Just uh, a customer at Fan Expo. Glad that he was there with his booth, um, selling a bunch of legacy prints and uh, lining up for the opportunity for him to uh, autograph it, grab a photo with him, and uh, if you had the extra time and ready to donate a few more dollars, he'd also uh, throw a little uh, quick sketch on that. So he did end up drawing me a little Batman head, oddly enough. I think he'd been a regular on the uh, circuit for, for the last 20 years or so. I think he was maybe a little resistant to that back in the day. But always happy to give give his fans a few minutes and uh, a green arrow print i picked up that day has a place of pride in my house 
And uh, yeah, the gent passed away just shy. He would have turned 81 this month. And it's not just uh, the classic body of work he leaves behind, which we'll talk about, but as Andrew mentioned, just his legacy as a creator and a figure in the industry who uh, elevated things. And for those who already know a lot about Neil Adams, you'll probably be glad that we're continuing to spread the word about him. And for those who aren't as familiar, maybe this is a good opportunity to learn about a legend. Yeah, totally. Now, uh, of course, the heyday of Neil Adams' work in comics was the 70s, but uh, he did get his start in the 60s, and uh, one of the places you got to start at is, uh, I know, a uh, publisher that you're a big fan of, Archie Comics. Yep. He brought in samples for their superhero line for The Fly, and he left them behind, and when he came back to pick them up, one of the pages had like a big part missing. And what happened was is that the editor didn't like a certain page that uh, his artist had drawn in the way that the fly was transforming. And he liked it in that sample, so he cut the panel out from that sample and stuck it into the comics. And they ended up paying him uh, a third of the page rate for it. Yeah, sorry, sorry, we can't give you a gig this time around, but we'll just steal a little bit of what uh, you showed us the other day. Thanks for that. But it ended up giving, well, they did pay him. Uh, Uh, You know what I mean. They ended up giving him jobs for their their gag comics. Uh, So he was doing stuff in Archie's Joke Book magazine and stuff like that. And eventually he would work with uh, artist Howard Nostrand on the Bat Masterson syndicated newspaper strip. Uh, he ended up doing the Ben Casey syndicated newspaper strip, which was the comic based on the TV show. And uh, eventually he started getting into regular comics work. Uh, Archie Goodwin brought him in to do some work on Creepy and Eerie. And then he kind of got his way into DC by uh, doing their war comics because they had just lost. Joe Kubert had just left. And he was like, I can draw to like Joe Kubert. And so he got uh, gigs there doing war comics. And he was kind of like, when he first came in, he was doing a style that was not very common, a more photorealistic style. And so it made him stand out, but it also made a lot of uh, editors not want to hire him at first. But then eventually, as tastes would change, that would be his calling card. Yeah, so while he was sniffing around for gigs, his bread and butter was advertising artwork hence hence a lot of of the realism and yeah now that was something that you would consider a standard maybe may a little off-putting when people are still thinking oh we're, we're, we're doing something simple here for the kids but a hallmark of of neil adams at his finest is he knows how to draw good-looking men and women and they they look like they're, they're lifted off of uh, magazine covers also uh able to distinguishably draw various ethnicities respectfully and accurately. Pretty amazing to look at, regardless of what stories his, his artwork was falling in. No, totally. And, of course, the Superman versus Muhammad Ali was like his last big DC job of the 70s. And uh, that cover for that specific comic... There was a number of famous celebrities in the uh, in the audience 
in that, which some of the ones they couldn't get the likeness rights for. So, like, he had to take John Wayne and put a big mustache on him. Right. And did Frank Sinatra refuse as well, or is he in there? I don't know. There's the, In the original and then in reprints, there actually is a guide that, that matches up the, the heads in the audience and who they are, for those who are curious. A lot more topical to circa 1976-77 that, that wouldn't be as familiar today, but it was kind of an A-list uh, of celebrities who would have went to uh, a big... Uh, top-tier fight at Madison Square Garden back in the day to see and be seen. Yeah, yeah, no, it was very cool. With his time at DC, uh, he started off doing a lot of covers, uh, action comics, 356 and Superman's Girl Lois Lane, and he was doing the uh, comedy comics, like The Adventures of Jerry Lewis, The Adventures of Bob Hope. But when he really started to get a lot of hero work, it was his uh, run on Dead Man. And so he did work on Dead Man. At the same time, he ended up going over to Marvel, asked them what their lowest-selling book was. It was X-Men at the time. He ended up doing about seven issues of X-Men before the book got uh, put on hiatus there. That's actually where he did, like, one of his first collaborations with Denny O'Neill was uh, on one of those issues, which, of course, him and Denny O'Neill would be famous for their work on Batman together, where they co-created Rachel Ghoul. And, of course, Neil Adams also created Man-Bat, on there, but their biggest claims to fame there, besides Rachel Ghoul, was bringing back the maniacal Joker in the Joker's Five Way Revenge. They also revived Two Face as well. So, huge contributions to the Batman universe during that time. Now, have you ever gone back and read the uh, the Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill Batman run? Periodically through the years, yes, I do revisit that. Uh, There's some indelible images from my childhood. There's a Batman puzzle I've got sitting in a closet at my parents' home somewhere that is an image from one of those Batman stories with him running across a beach with uh, that cape flowing. And uh, you also mentioned in your anecdote off the top how he liked to draw Batman because it was two characters, Batman and the cape. And and it was him that made that cape long and flowing again. The the way uh, Neil would draw a cape and the way it flowed, or even if Batman's knocked on the ground and the way it's kind of bunched around him, paves the way. I don't think without that, that you get uh, Todd McFarlane's spawn cape. And the icon that that is, how that thing just goes nuts all over the place. Yeah, he definitely was the first artist to give Batman, like, the cape has a life of its own type thing. It's like this huge presence, definitely. But one of the big things about Neil Adams back in the day that is kind of, when you say it, when you talk about it now, it's like, well, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But back then it was a really big deal was, so, of course, there was two companies. There's Marvel, there's DC. And say you were working at one and you had a name at one. If you went to work for the other one, you would go under a pseudonym. You would work under a fake name at the other company if you were working there at the same time. But not Neil Adams. Neil Adams was the first artist to work freelance at both companies at the same time using his name on the comics. So it's like he's working on Batman, he's working on Avengers all at the same time 
Neil Adams' name is used. Again, it might not seem like a big deal, but back then, nobody did that. He was a trailblazer in that respect as well. And showing that, I mean, his name is legendary. That X-Men run you mentioned what wasn't enough to save the book. The X-Men was a low seller for Marvel at that point. Uh, that was the last original material that would appear in X-Men. And then for the next few years, they would go into uh, reprints until uh, the debut of new X-Men with uh, Cockrum and Wayne and, and Claremont. With Neil Adams, so going back, surprisingly, because I'm not a Superman guy, if you go back to that Superman Muhammad Ali it's, 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 it was issued in a, a treasury edition format, these huge things that were kind of ubiquitous in the late 70s, which is the best way to showcase some artwork. That one is really a sampler of everything great about Neil Adams. Uh, the photorealism, the likeness, the action sequences, the uh, variety of page layout, the demonstration of Superman's raw power when, when, when he's fighting a space armada towards the end of it. It's everything Neil Adams and, and Superman's version of Neil Adams kind of was the company face of the 70s. Before merch for any comic property was all over the place like it is today, uh, Marvel and DC would often just be selling their own stuff uh, on ad pages in the comics. But, but the the Superman you would see on lunchboxes, thermoses, T-shirts, a lot of those basic items, it, it was it was the Neil Adams version of Superman that would be on those. And one of the iconic Superman covers, there there was a storyline where Superman actually, for a while, becomes immune to the effects of kryptonite, and it's him flexing and breaking these kryptonite chains that are around him on his chest. Anyone who's seen it knows what I'm talking about, whether you like Superman or not. It's it's that famous. His version of Superman is very iconic, definitely. But when it comes to iconic uh, versions of characters and uh, in some ways some redesigns, you got to talk about Green Arrow. Of course, uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow was a big deal between uh, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill. Neil Adams actually redesigned the Green Arrow in the Brave and the Bold 85 by giving him what is now his trademark goatee. And at the same time, Denny O'Neill was telling a story, I think, in Justice League where um, uh, Oliver Queen had lost all of his millions. And that was kind of like taking those two things together and making him the socially conscious superhero where he basically has to teach Hal Jordan to care about the little guy type thing. And they go on the road, the hard-traveling heroes. Now, of course, we've done an episode on this previously and go into the archives. For my money, that is the iconic Neil Adams work. I know you're, you're a big fan of the Green Arrow character and a lot of Green Arrow comics in your collection. And, and yeah, that, that version of him that we now know as the definitive Green Arrow doesn't exist before uh, before they essentially reboot the character, who up until that point uh, 
was kind of just a sad shadow of Batman. Just uh, had a sidekick. He what, had are a, he ta- had, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Was it the Arrow the, Cave? The, the Arrow Car. The Arrow Car, the Arrow uh, Plane. All of those Happens things. Happens to be a millionaire, too. Yeah. All of those things are totally original. And <laughs> I, I can do everything Batman can, but I can't. I, I'm pretty good with a bow and arrow, though, so I will be the first new member invited to join the Justice League, surprisingly. It totally makes sense. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, once, once they start to get a little relevant uh, with, with the context of the 60s, we, we, we continue to erase some of uh, the prior Green Arrow's squeaky clean non-history, where they discover that uh, Oliver Queen's ward, Roy Harper, a.k.a. his trusty sidekick Speedy, uh, is a heroin addict. Yeah, no. When everybody everybody talks about these these Green Lantern Green Arrow, the first thing that comes up is the cover to the issue where Speedy is shooting up, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, my own ward, a junkie. It says, on it. and it, it's a lot. That was the thing because of the time. A lot of the the stuff they cover is very in your face in the way they cover it. So of course that entire run covered racism and overpopulation and drug addiction. And so you have these two issues about Speedy being uh, addicted to heroin, and everybody remembers that iconic cover. But less people remember the cover that came after that, the second part of the story, where it is a giant hypodermic needle. (laughs) I think they did some superheroing for five minutes in this run when they weren't uh, addressing and solving all of the world's uh, social issues. And we were we were discussing this before we rolled. I think around this time we had the Comics Code Authority finally starting to flex on some of its rigid standards that had been set and adhered to in, in the paranoid 50s. Uh, so, so now you could more freely address this type of subject matter and, and use a little more, at least for the time, uh, graphic imagery to depict what, what was happening. No, definitely, yeah. It's uh, speedy shooting up. I mean, they definitely had to uh, to lessen the uh, the authority there, and I think it probably also has to do with around that same time the Spider-Man issues about drugs came out, and Marvel ran the uh, the comics without the Comics Code Authority on it, and so maybe that's part of the reason why they had to start making changes, sort of thing. Because those ended up being critically acclaimed books, just like these Green Lantern, Green Arrow issues, totally. Of course, the other thing that uh, O'Neill and Adams did on their run on that is that they co-created Jon Stewart, which of course became a iconic fixture in the world of Green Lantern and eventually would have his own talk show on Comedy Central. Yeah. Uh, so there you go, but... Uh, well, yeah, so all of that time, like that's all of his mainstream stuff at that time was very important, but he was also very heavily invested in the rights of the creators. And so in the 70s, he put together the Comics Creators Guild in 1978 or for the rights of creators. And uh, he, he lobbied for uh, Siegel and Schuster when the Superman movie was coming out to uh, set them up to actually re-get their... Uh, their credit for the character because it had been running for years without it saying Superman created by Siegel and Schuster because of a a court dispute from years before where they retained the rights to Superboy, but in order to get them Superman, they lost their, their creator credits on those. So 
He lobbied for them to get them back in time for the movie and to get some financial restitution for the release of the film. He lobbied to get a lot of artists' original art back because originally, you know, the uh, artist would submit his art and it would stay at the company and they'd have so much art and everything they'd end up just giving it away to people when they came to visit the the bullpens and things like that. Well, well imagine that going to the Marvel offices in, in the 1960s. You're dropping in, and uh, you know rather than just, just say a spinner rack of that month's comics out there to take a few samples home, the secretary is at the desk. It's like, would you like to take home this this original page of artwork? And it ends up being a, a Jack Kirby Fantastic Four page or something worth who knows how much today. But yeah. The artists who put their blood, sweat, and tears into that, as soon as it's submitted, it's the property of the companies to uh, do with as they see fit. And originally, the creators weren't 100% upset about it because they're like, well, I, I live in like a small house. I don't want to <laughs> fill up the house with art. But then, of course, with the Donna conventions, there became a collector's market for these things. And so these people that got these free pieces of art when they went to Marvel or DC suddenly were making tons of money off of art that they had no right to at conventions. And the artists saw wind of this, and that's what started the, the movement to for artists to get their art back. And Neil Adams was a huge proponent of that and fought for Jack Kirby and them and for he himself to get his art back. And so he was always standing up for creator rights. And at the same time, he was looking towards the future, giving a lot of young artists their first crack at comics when he created uh, Continuity Associates, founded in 1971 by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. They actually ended up helping get the start of like Terry Austin, Larry Hama, Bob Layton, Jim Starlin, Walt Simonson, Howard Chaikin. Marshall Rogers. Marshall Rogers. And the thing was, these guys, they worked in a big studio and were totally collaborative. And not only would uh, continuity artists like get big name artists onto books at Marvel and DC and stuff like that, or for advertising and things like that. They'd, they'd sometimes put together entire teams saying, Oh, you want so you want, you want us to work on your book? Here's the team that's going to work on it. And if multiple artists worked on one of these things, they'd always sign it crusty bunker yep. or crusty Brown. And so they were known as the crusty bunkers. And to me, when I hear about all the stuff they did back then, it sounds like the real life version of what Stan Lee kind of sold as what the Marvel bullpen was like. Right. They got to live the actual like dream of being in kind of like this collective of great creators. And at this point, Neil Adams respect in the industry is enough that as I'm a read some anecdotes over the last few months. Uh, there were some artists. One comes to mind, Bob McLeod, who I believe was one of the early artists on New Mutants before uh, it became kind of synonymous with Bill Sienkiewicz for a while. Um, but he got his first job at Marvel basically on a, on a word-of-mouth recommendation from Neil Adams. No samples submitted or anything. It was just like, oh, okay, no. Yeah, yeah, he can come and start. We, we can give him some work in the department uh, on Monday if you think he's good enough. And that's, even today, having that kind of weight is pretty impressive. Oh, yeah, totally. And you mentioned Bill Sienkiewicz. 
as interesting, before Bill Sienkiewicz found his signature style, he was originally kind of like a Neil Adams clone. If you look back at the original issues of Moon, Moon Knight, Knight 1, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it looks exactly like a Neil Adams drawing, totally. And in the late 70s, I wouldn't be surprised if if the instructions weren't given, you know, we're looking for a Neil Adams type, that, that editors, at least in the back of their head, were looking for a, a, a Neil Adams style. Problem is, if someone had the look down, that's what would be missing, the style and the soul. It's, it's, it's clear you're trying to do something, and hey, it's, it's acceptable, but uh, you, you're, not, you're never going to replace the real deal. So with continuity comics, maybe not as big in terms of sales and such, but he, he would get into some, some experimental stuff in the 80s. Yeah, well, yeah, they, the, the continuity the, comics ran for 10 years, the, so 84 to 94. The, there's, there's, he had a hero named Skate Man, this yeah, dude who Skate fought Man, yeah. not on roller blades. He fought on roller skates. The art um, looked great, but the story. Ooh. Yeah, there, there was something, uh, some kind of marketing opportunity there, where, where, where Mr. T, yeah, was put into comic forms right at the height of his, uh, you know, his, his his Rocky three appearance, and then his run on the A Team, which once again it looks bang on, but uh, the story itself probably isn't going to change anybody's life. Yeah, I pity the fool who. Uh, I pity the who fool who tells that. me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man but yeah so when you talk about creators who have left a lasting effect in the industry and put out a positive space out there you can't look past neil adams because not only does he have a legendary uh, portfolio of work he also touched the lives of so many creators and you know he did some good well, stepping outside of comics for a second, a cause he worked for in his later years, there was a uh, a Jewish woman, and uh, forgive me, her name is not coming to mind, but she was she had some had some artistic gifts, mm. and during World War II, she was forced to 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 use her talent to to do some artwork demonstrating uh, Nazi racial superiority. And uh, you're going to do what you're told um, so that you and your family can stay alive. But uh, he was, Mr. Adams was making this a point in his later years. I believe this woman passed away in the last few years as well. But he wanted that artwork returned to her. Uh, and I did not 100% sure who it was in the custody of. But the point was something that this poor woman was made to do under duress uh, needed to be acknowledged and returned, at least if not to her, to her family, so that any proper recognition and compensation for that, besides its historical context, uh, could finally be properly acknowledged. Right, yeah. So, in short, Neil Adams was a defender of the comic artist, a defender of the comic art, and uh, did some phenomenal work, and he'll be remembered, and he will be missed. We could continue to talk about his work for hours on end, but you've probably been checking out or hearing other tributes from him. I thank Andrew today for with with using one of my quarterly visits to still allow us to talk about him. Uh, my argument being that you know, if if anybody famous in today's world, uh, pop culture or otherwise, passes away, it's not like 
one channel or one magazine covers it. There's a lot that needs to be said and that people want to be heard. And in our little corner of the world, Geek Hard loves and respects the work that this man created and entertained us with. For, for so many years and for so many years to come. And But I will try and push just a few more things if you just want to okay. look at uh, or look up some other famous work of his. Because surprisingly, looking at his bi- bibliography, I, I thought it w- would have been a lot thicker for Marvel and DC, but it's just that the stuff he did <laughs> became iconic. So so we have people who've heard me on this show before know I'm a huge Avengers fan. Uh, there's a definitive storyline from uh, the early 90s, not the years, the comic numbers of the first Avengers run, uh, the Kree-Skrull War, which is a precursor to bigger company-type events. Yeah, because it was the, the first long-form, long-arc in... A Marvel comic, yeah. In that, you get a demonstration of Neil's ability to draw teams. And that's one thing that maybe that you don't get to see in that Superman Muhammad Ali, which I, I highly recommend you get your hands on and take a look at. But with his version of the Avengers, Thor looks regal as a god, but he's not drawn steroid pumped up and overblown. Iron Man looks like the, you know... The, for for the time, the modern man and machine hybrid, uh, Captain America looks very athletic. He's he is the super soldier, and and so on and so forth going down the roster. The the last thing I'd say is, I mean, it's a cliche that's used a lot when famous musical people die. Oh, there's one more great blank. We'll say guitarist that's up in the band in heaven tonight. It's going to be a great set, or if it's reuniting some old bandmates. But uh, Denny O'Neill passed away a few years ago, and the realization came to me, reflecting on, on Neil no longer being with us, is those two dudes are back together up there somewhere, and maybe they're going to make <laughs> one more awesome collaboration that's waiting for us to get up there when we get up to the uh, that shop off the beaten path. Oh, man. Well, uh, we've come to the end of the show. Adam, I want to thank you for coming on the program once again. Uh, tell the good folks where they can find you. As usual, find me at AdamSecora71 on Twitter. And uh, if we got you to check out some Neil Adams stuff you weren't aware of until today, let us know what you thought. And, of course, you can find everything I do over at geekhardshow.com. Follow me on Twitter at geekhard. Follow this very show on Facebook at Back Issue Bloodbath, where we post the new episode every week. Of course, the easiest way to make sure you don't miss an episode is to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice, be it the iTunes, the Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods. And while you're there, leave a five-star rating and review. Definitely take the time. Check out some Neil Adams' work. Uh, you won't regret it. This has been Back to Your Bloodbath. I've been Andrew Young. I was Adam Sakura. Have yourself a good.